Guess what, cinephiles? I've just heard something absolutely mind-blowing. Okay, so you know when you search for something on Netflix, what you get is only a tiny fraction of what Netflix actually has. Netflix actually has more than 18,000 titles globally, but only like 6,000 of those are available in the U.S., so you're missing out on literally thousands of great shows, unless you use ExpressVPN. Yeah, Steve, ExpressVPN is an app that lets you change your online location. So like, for example, if you're looking for stuff that's from another country, you're based here in the United States, you actually change your online location to Australia or the UK so you can control where you want Netflix to think you're located. They have over 100 different locations. They're on ExpressVPN. So you can, you can gain access to like thousands of of new shows no matter where you live. And this works with many other streaming services too there. You guys have Disney Plus or Hulu or Max or the BBC iPlayer, which is the one I use. I know I've used ExpressVPN to connect to Australia because I really love this show called Have You Been Paying Attention? I just put myself in Melbourne and I get access to it. You sign up using your email, but you immediately get access to the stuff. I've used the BBC iPlayer to watch a number of shows there on the BBC like Law & Order UK and others. And sometimes this show Guilty that I love that uh, screens there, when the new seasons pop up, because it takes like four months to get them on PBS, I watch them there using ExpressVPN. And it's incredible how easy it is and how simple it is to use. So why should you use ExpressVPN? Well, first of all, it is super fast. That means you can stream everything in HD with no buffering. It works on any device. So I'm an Apple guy, which means I've already installed it on my Mac, on my iPhone, on my iPad, and on my Apple TV. I'd install it on my Apple Watch if I could, and it encrypts your data. Now, this is hugely important because it protects your privacy and your security to keep you safe from hackers. So stop missing out on great TV and get thousands of new shows with ExpressVPN. We got them to give you guys three extra months of free use when you use our special link, expressvpn.com slash cinephiles. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S to get three extra months completely free. God damn you, Joe. Don't make me do this. Larry, stop pointing that fucking gun at my dad! Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where this week we are concluding our exploration of Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, and host here in uh, San Diego, California, and excited to be uh, putting some blood and uh, gunpowder back on our bodies to finish off this talk on Reservoir Dogs. And I'm excited to welcome back to the Cinephiles writer and producer David McKenna. Welcome back. I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, and I think without further ado, we should just jump right in. But I want to I want to kind of review because it all flows so beautifully. What's just happened, which is we found out that Mr. Orange was a cop. And then we went back to the moment right after he had officially signed on to do the job with Joe and the other guys. Right. And then when asked if he used the commode story, we went way back in time to when he had first decided to become an undercover cop. 
And then we had him telling a story that's false, but even further back in time and practicing it. Then we went forward in time where he's actually telling the story. Then we went back to an imaginary time where he's living in the story. Then we went back forward in time to the moment just after he got the job where he'd been asked about the commode story. And now we're going to jump forward in time a little further, not quite to the present where we're in the warehouse, but right before they're training to go to the job. Hmm. That's a lot of craziness that's just happened, don't you think? It sounds like a Marvel multiverse movie, <laughs> multiple universes clashing <laughs> into each other, for God's sakes. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, it, what, well, I mean, where have you seen that before? And I mean, that's the whole deal is that's that was the greatness of this movie is we just hadn't seen that before. And I'll tell you, this came from a one point six million dollar movie cost. It wasn't from Marvel, John, like you were just alluding to. Right, right. I mean, it was a guy with a creative engine that is something that we've never seen before in our lives, you know. What's remarkable to me about it is there's nothing about what Tarantino accomplishes here that costs money. What it cost or what it needed, what it required was a dude who fundamentally understand how films work in a way most people don't because what he understood, and this is, and this is maybe me talking just as an editor, but like, because it's things that I've discovered over, you know, 30 years of editing is, is like what makes the audience unaware as we flow from one cut or one moment to the next Hmm. is there's filmmaking technique and screenwriting technique that makes it all just flow. So nobody is aware that we were jumping. It just flowed like totally naturally. That's what's amazing about it to me. Yeah. I don't know if it was the editing per se. I think I honestly think you're dealing with a genius here who's in the middle of a scene and he's going back and forth and he's breaking every rule because he knows he can and because he's a true innovator. And that's what I appreciate the most. You know what it is, is that he's actually editing in the script. Yeah, he is. That's what it really is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so now we've come forward past the diner where he signed on to the job. And now we're in, he's going to go out and do the job. We're in his place. He answers the phone. It's, it's uh, nice guy, Eddie, t- saying it's showtime. Grab your jacket. I'm parked outside. I'll be right down. There are a whole bunch of little details in this scene that I find interesting. The first one that I, there was just this last time watching it that I picked up on is All the music, by the way, there's no score in this film. All the music is songs. And it's all been K. Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s. Yeah. Did either of you notice what music is playing in Freddie's apartment? It's like a country song. It's like a country song. Country song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to me, like, Fool fool for Love. Fool for Love. That to me is just such, it is a totally small choice, but what it says is he's not one of them. He has a, his whole background is completely different from what we thought. So another moment that I find fascinating is we see him go through a bunch of coins, find like a wedding ring and put it on, which I would think you'd be taking off your wedding ring. Now would tell us, but this is the opposite. Why? So is his character that he's playing married? Is that what's going on? I, I'm going to guess here, John, that um, I think that uh, he's probably going through 
uh, separation or doesn't he feel like as a character, like yeah. he's separated from his wife. Mm. And she can't handle all that stuff. And I think he puts it on for protection. I mean, don't you yeah. guys? Yeah. A little bit of a, like, it's almost like armor, right? This yeah, it's of, armor. Like, mentally a little bit of armor. And I always think, and, and you know, um, we're talking about this situation with the ring that you bring up, Steve. It also reminds me of that scene in um, the departed where Alec Baldwin says, are you married? Good. If you're married, that means somebody can stand you and you win some points. And so maybe in a way, and as you just said, Steve, this is what makes him different. No one else is wearing a wedding ring in that crew. So it's almost like a little bit, maybe even like a superhero power, like a Green Lantern thing, putting the ring on. And we know Quentin Tarantino knows about superheroes. So sure. maybe in a way that's a little bit of an allusion to that as well putting a ring on so he can create some kind of force field around himself and convince himself that nothing's going to happen to him. But it's an interesting moment to grab that ring out for sure. And it's funny. We, we spent so much time talking about the commode story and a lot of the time we spent talking about it as advice to the actor. You know, this is all about what an actor has to do. Well, I got news for you and I know David, you can back me up all every bit of that advice that applies to the actor that applies to the screenwriter and the director. It's all the little details. You, little because that's what you're doing. Yeah, you're but, imagining hey, the details. Do you guys remember uh, Sex Lies and Videotape? When we oh first yeah, meet where he he literally flicks his wedding ring. The character that we meet, uh, what the hell is the name? The guy who's if you haven't seen Sex Lies and Videotape, people it, yeah. who are listening to this, yeah. please see it. But Peter Gallagher, he, I think. Peter Gallagher. Yeah. Right when we meet him. He flips his wedding ring on the table and it's spinning like a top. You know, I mean, you know what you're getting with this guy. Yeah. By the way. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Point. The so wedding we, rings, wedding rings say so much about characters <laughs> in movies. Seriously. And then this moment before he goes out to actually do the job is amazing. It's an actor's moment. Yeah. It's an actor's moment before he walks on stage before he goes onto a set. And then there's that moment where he's looking at himself in the mirror and psyching himself up and psyching himself up. And I love that before he walks out there for me as an actor, I was watching that. I remember it in the 1990s. I'm watching that moment going, damn it. I know that moment. Oh, what an incredible thing to throw into this. I didn't even think about it. Undercover yeah. cop having to like convince himself that he can do these things. Cause I've watched undercover shows, cops going undercover movies, and I had never seen a moment like that. And it was so Where good. he's going to go arm rob a jewelry store. Yeah. A cop. <laughs> <laughs> he looks in the mirror and he says, Don't pussy out on me now. They don't know. They don't know shit. Right. <laughs> How scared is he at this moment? Seriously. Yeah. In just in a, a minute, we're going to hear the other cops say, you got to have, you know, rocks in your head to go undercover or whatever they say. Yeah. Like, I this seems absolutely terrifying to me. Well, think about it. He's a young cop. Right. He's got a gun. He's hooked up with some bad dudes. Yep. He's getting ready to go commit armed robbery. And he's staring himself at the mirror. It's and this line, it's fun. And and because we've told the story out of order, this yeah. line takes up all sorts of significance because he says, You're not gonna get hurt. And of course, we know that's not true. Yeah. And then a pure, this is just a pure Tarantino line. You're fucking Beretta. They believe every fucking word because you're super cool. <laughs> <laughs> I also think I'm going to throw this in because watching it this time, I had never thought this before. But, you know, as we were focusing, you know, when you, when you watch a movie for the cinephiles, 
I am like always just kind of reassessing every scene as I'm watching the movie to get back into the vibe of it. And I wonder how much of that is him and how much of it is uh, his friend or a friend or the colleague there who was training him on how mm-hmm. to say this. And and if it's his voice that he's he, that he hears telling him, they don't fucking know, they don't fucking know and just getting him psyched up, you know? And so I, th- I wonder how much of it is him and how much of it is mm-hmm. the training from this guy. And I had never thought that before until I watched it this time around. All right, so he heads out and then there's this really strange moment, which we hear. There goes our boy. I swear, guy has to have rocks in his head the size of Gibraltar to work undercover. And we're looking through the windshield and you suddenly realize, oh, we're with the cops that yeah. are staking him out to follow him. It's such an interesting moment. That's right. And then we hear the beginnings of a song, which today I associate with Guardians of the Galaxy, but actually this is probably where I first became aware of it, which is the ooga-chaka. And now we cut to a scene in the car with Mr. White, Mr. Orange, Mr. Pink, and Nice Guy Eddie. And I'm going to tell you, gentlemen, something that you might be very disappointed in me with, but not only is this my least favorite scene in the movie, I, I genuinely think this goes on way too long. I wow. really do. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, guys. Bring your complaints. I kind of agree with you on this one, Steve. I really think it is. I definitely think it's the least interesting scene in the movie, for sure. It's a little bit interesting, but um, I think it probably could have been cut or it's, edited it's, for sure. Uh, I'll say thing, and then I could see I could see the wheels turning in John's head. So, <laughs> but but here's what I'll say: is like yeah. first of all, one of the things Tarantino is a master of is the the disc the conversation that's fascinating mm-hmm. but disconnected from the movie. And we obviously spent so much time singing the praises of Like a Virgin and Tipping and all that stuff. Yeah. And even though it has nothing to do with the movie that makes it, and of course you've got the Royale with cheese, you've got other scenes where it's just, ha- and that's what this scene is. Mm-hmm. And the dialogue is sharp and sparkling, but I, and this is also the other thing I'll say, you know, we've talked about how he deals with race and this is because the scene doesn't feel necessary to me. This is where I really notice and, and kind of get a little uncomfortable with what's being discussed in this scene. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, watching it this time around, it seemed a bit out of place, right? And I think in 1992, when I saw it, it didn't feel out of place. But now in 2023, with some of the subject matter in the scene, it seems a little bit slightly out of place. And the way they casually talk about, you know, a black woman and what the black guys and their relationship. And I guarantee you, behind closed doors, you don't pull that shit all that stuff. But again, they're villains, they're criminals. And this is to showcase the kind of approach they have to the world and their back and forths about the world. But it also shows how um, uh, Tim Roth's character is like the physical approach he takes to these guys. Because Keitel's in the passenger seat and he's got the arm out. It's a very alpha shot, right? Uh, Penn is driving the car, so it's an alpha moment. Buscemi on the other side is a little more like kind of caved in, but he's owned his space. And you see Tim Roth is a little more sunken into where he's at. So he's observing everything. Yeah. And remember, these are the the four people that are going to be involved, not Buscemi, obviously, Mr. Pink, but are going to be involved either witnessing or participating in the shootout that we're just about to get to, uh, the standoff that we're going to get to. So we're seeing a little more personality between them and conversation so that we can remember that these are real people. And then when the shit happens, 
we feel that all the more because we haven't been removed from them. We've actually gotten more time with them. So the deaths are going to resonate a little bit more when they happen. But I mean, I take your point, Steve and, and uh, David certainly could have been uh, cut, but like, well, I kind of like that it's here to give us a little more context for their relationships and a little more of an easygoing demeanor with them all in terms of status. Yeah. I think that the, the difference is between Steve and I is I'm not offended necessarily mm-hmm. by the topic of conversation. I just think that that scene could have been rewritten in a way that mm-hmm. was more integral to the right. story. It's very tangential. You know, I mean, what's going on? It's more the basic yeah, yeah, banner yeah. bullshit. We've already seen that go yeah. on. You know, it's not it's not driving the narrative. Um, but then again, you know, it's a one point six million dollar movie. Yeah. It's an independent movie. You know, there's scenes like this that are going to be happening. We can't be picky. But I'm not like Steve where and I'm not saying whether or not what you feel exact. I'm not putting words in your brain, Steve, because I'm going to hear <laughs> explain you explain yourself, it. Steve. But I. I didn't know, but I didn't, okay. I wasn't offended by the material. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, this is Tarantino. You know, you're going to be offended the entire time. I mean, what, you know, what do we expect? And we've already been incredibly <laughs> inundated with race and sex and crime and everything else, you know? So I, I my biggest problem with the scene was not necessarily its content. It's just yeah. the narrative of the story. And this is the thing, I, because I'm not offended that these hardened criminals who are bad guys are saying, you know, racist things. Right. I'm not offended watching a movie where characters are racist because there are racists right. in the world. And I don't right. think we should have things where we don't right. show stuff. Sure. I'm not even offended that it's funny and that we're, you know, handling it in a funny way. Right. It's it's really it's exactly what david is saying which is that for me the movie has is losing narrative thrust Mm. and because it's losing narrative thrust what it's making me hyper aware of Mm -hmm. is that we're losing narrative thrust in order to spend time with these sort of racial things when i'm not as involved and so they become more highlighted it's it's you know that's sort of my feeling but let's talk about we've talked we've talked about the scene but let's say what's actually going on which is the first line in the scene is hey i know what i'm talking about okay black women ain't the same as white women and that gets us into a discussion um and and i'll move a little faster through the scene and maybe this is sort of like this is where i think you could have just edited it down a little bit and then i would have had my objections is that what we get to is this story about e lois yeah and e lois is a cocktail waitress who worked at one of daddy's clubs (laughs) Um, and I like, by the way, the <laughs> distinction they say at one point. Where was she from, Compton? <laughs> from Ladora Heights. Oh, Ladora Heights. That's uh-huh. the Black Beverly Hills. <laughs> oh, it's not the Black Beverly Hills. It's the Black Collins Verdes. <laughs> now, for those of you who don't live in yeah. Southern California, that might mean nothing. But the difference between the Black Beverly Hills and the Black Palace Verdes it's huge. Yeah. Those are total. That's a great distinction. Yeah. Watching it in 92, no idea. Watching it this time around, totally understood. Yeah. Exactly. And so, and then we hear that she looked just like Christy Love. Yeah. And we go, who's Christy Love? And she's like, oh, the black female cop. And I like, 
both uh, Eddie and Mr. Pink say at the same time, you're under arrest, sugar. <laughs> and then we get in this conversation of who was the actress and was she Pam Greer? And it's like, no, it wasn't Pam Greer. Pam Greer was the other one. Pam Greer did the film. Christy Love was like a Pam Greer TV show without Pam Greer. And what's interesting to me is that's Orange who says that. That's him. So he jumps in with some information there. And I like the moment where they go. So who was Christy Love? What the fuck should I know? (laughs) By the way, the answer is Teresa Graves, in case you were wondering. (laughs) And what's interesting, and this goes back to being a screenwriter, is sometimes you have no idea what the people are talking about. But when you know what they are talking about and they get each other, then you're more open to accepting the scene and liking the scene as long as they understand yeah, what they're absolutely. talking about. You yeah, know what yeah, I mean, yeah. John? And that's one of the, that's one of these scenes. This is, the, yeah, this is yeah, that 100%. scene defined. Cause we have no you're idea. Right. I don't know any of these names that are coming up. And 99 Jew, I had no idea who these people were. I looked it up, you know, afterwards and later when I've seen the movie a few times, <laughs> looked up these people, but like, yeah. But I also think I bet, I bet dollars to donuts use a Tarantino term that he, fought like nails like a wildcat to keep this scene because this is him showing off a little bit about what we talked about steve in our overall conversation about tarantino that he grew up watching black cinema watching black shows and so this is him maybe honoring that upbringing honoring the people who were there that took him to those films the boyfriends what have you of his mom that took him to those films and exposed him to this uh culture this approach so this is his way maybe of honoring that by making these references to these shows that hardly anybody knew um, or watched uh, at the time. Well, you, John, you and I are so on the same page. This is exactly what I was thinking too. Yeah. And in particular, one of the things that I was thinking about was like, okay, Tarantino is hanging out with black men who are at least half a generation older than him, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, because these are like his mom's boyfriends and people like that. And it it maybe go like, if you would listen to uh, African-American men of that generation talking about younger African-American men, they would be making, they might be making some of these jokes. And the the characters that I'm picturing is in do the right thing. The three guys on the corner who in 89, probably were the same generation those guys who are in their you know 50 40s 50s late 40s 50s were the same generation as the guys that were taking quentin to movies in the early 70s you know and so i think probably that's what it that's what i felt i have no evidence for this whatsoever but that is what i felt also Uh, christy love is an undercover cop on that show Oh, what a great point. I so can't a, believe I never thought of that. What a great you know, point. Yeah, she's an undercover detective on that show. So, like, that's also a little bit of a foreshadowing or a hinting by Tarantino. Heck, yeah. And then what we get to is the story about E. Lois, which takes a long time to get to where the actual story is. And now, apparently, Lady E was married to a real piece of dog shit. I mean, a real fucking animal. He used to do things to her. Well, do things, do things. Like, what? what would he do? Like, he wants to go down that road. Yeah. And what we find out is... She waits for this bag of shit to get to her. He falls asleep on the fucking couch. She sneaks up on him. And she puts some wacko glue on his dick and glues his dick to his belly. And all the guys are laughing now. This is the funniest thing. They had to call the paramedics to cut the prick loose. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> and the button on the scene is... Was he all pissed off? <laughs> 
How would you feel if every time you had to take a piss, you had to do a fucking handstand? <laughs> and they all laugh in hysterics. Real quick, you know, Lorena Bobbitt was a year after this movie. 93. Really? Oh, wow. So I wonder if, like, she saw the movie. Oh, come so on, she is the God. E. Lois of reality? <laughs> Well, she didn't, there was no glue involved. She used a razor blade. She went the man. next step. <laughs> yeah. And we cut to, and this is, and it's so funny. Like uh, there's so, there are good things in the scene. And the way we come out of the scene is great because we cut to Joe making a speech who goes, Oh, you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh? Well, let me tell a joke. Five guys sitting in a bullpen, San Quentin, wondering how the fuck they got there. <laughs> The thing, the um, thing. Um, and I, I, man, I like hard ass Joe. I, mm-hmm. I, I like oh, him. Yeah, it's an amazing scene. This scene's amazing that you're coming to, Steve. Well, and what's great, and again, think of how we're moving through time because now we are before the opening scene, but we have the camera panning across those faces, hmm. two, three of which we know are dead. You know, and we, and we know what's happened to all these yeah. guys. Yeah. Um, hey, what's the name? What's the name of the scene? It's not a flashback. It's a, what is it again? It's, it's just a, a non-sequential, non-sequential, you or non-linear t- storytelling is what it is. I know, but there was a term that, that Quentin said. It's not a flashback. It's a something. I forget. Damn it, David! Now I would have to go all the way up through my notes and try Sorry, to find it. I can't. I can't. We're so close to the end, man. Um, <laughs> it's powered through. Finally, someone comes up with the idea. Wait a minute. While we were planning this caper, all we did was sit around and tell fucking jokes. By the way, I like that multiple times Joe says things like, look, I don't mean to holler at you. Yeah. When he's never raised his voice. This caper's over, and I'm sure it's going to be a successful one. Hell, we'll get down to Hawaiian Islands. I'll roll and laugh with all of you. John, you and I spent a lot of time discussing who would make a good Don when we did the Godfather movies. Oh, and yeah. Is Al Pacino a better Don than James Caan? And, right, right. And, how good a boss is Joe? Well, other than the critical mistake he makes with uh, Mr. Orange, I imagine he's an incredible boss because he's been able to do it this long. I you know what I'm saying? And he's got a code. And his his way of doing things works. And has worked multiple times. And he's been quite successful at doing it. And I like the way he... Co- and I think because of his style, right? Like we yeah. saw in the scene. Let me tell you guys what the fuck is up. And and he lays down the hammer to them like, yeah, you guys will be cutting jokes up in prison. Yeah. But look, I don't mean to holler at you. I respect you all. I appreciate you doing the job. You'll find me a different person later on. But for right now, let's focus. Let's be professional. So he's, you know, he's he's being respectful, but also hard when he needs to be hard. Like a like a Don would do, like a dad would do, who understands he's in charge of the situation. So yeah, I agree. I I love him in, in this role. Wouldn't you like to see a prequel? Of Joe, <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Like, like what? What did he do? Right. Before he became that character. Yeah. You know, was he? Do you think he was like? I mean, who do you think he was like? You think he was like Madsen's character? Do you think that he was like Nice Guy Eddie? Do you think he was like Mr. White? I think he was probably like Mr. White. I think he was like Mr. White. Yeah, I would agree with that. So, so you want to do the Godfather Two of and Reservoir right. Dogs? <laughs> Go back to the Joe origin story. <laughs> Maybe I mean, we that find out who married this dude. Who is nice guy Eddie's mom? Great point. <laughs> yeah. And now we're going to hear about the names. Under no circumstances, do I want any one of you 
to relate to each other by your Christian names. Which, of course, we know Larry Blue. And I don't want any talk about yourself personally. That includes where you've been, your wife's name, where you might have done time, or a bank maybe arrived in, say, Petersburg. And I like, as he's given this speech, who is the camera pushing in on but Mr. Orange. Yep. And then he bestows the names. Mr. Brown, Mr. White, Mr. Blonde, Mr. Blue, Mr. Orange, Mr. Pink. By the way, these names come from the taking of uh, Pelham 123. And Buscemi is great. <laughs> Why am I Mr. Pink? Because you're a faggot, all right? <laughs> is Mr. Pink gay? <laughs> no. no. I never thought that he was. Right. No. Like, I, and I go like, well, does Joe think that he is? Or is he? I mean, he could. I don't know. I think Mr. Pink has this quiet wife at home that just, <laughs> that just does whatever he wants. You know, I mean, he reminds me of sort of a talkative Al Pacino from Donnie Brasco, you know, a little. Why can't we pick our own colors? No way. No way. Try it once. It doesn't work. You get four guys all fighting over who's going to be Mr. Black. <laughs> so funny. So where the, the previous scene, I kind of go like, how is this advancing the narrative? Yeah. This scene, even though it's just it's funny, great dialogue to me, is totally advancing these characters, and I really, really like it. Yeah. How about if I'm Mr. Purple? I mean, that sounds good to me. I'll, I'll be Mr. Purple. You're not Mr. Purple. Some guy has some other job is Mr. Purple. You're Mr. Pink. <laughs> <laughs> Tyranny's so good here. Yeah, I mean, this scene compared to the scene previous, you know, mm. it's just, it's just, you know, it's. I totally agree with you, Steve, on that. It's just such a great scene. Could have cut. You could have cut straight to this scene from Tim Roth. Maybe. I mean, it would have been such a great cut. You know. Well, the only thing is that we have the line that goes into the scene of "You guys all want to laugh around a lot." Yeah, and yeah, so I, I, yeah, that's true. I think, depending on the coverage, I could cut down that uh, scene in the car if there's enough coverage, and I think it would be better. But I've thought this lots of times, and John has frequently disagreed. <laughs> yes, because. But I, you know, you might be right in this situation. Then it's his first film, so you know you might be oh, absolutely. Exactly. This is a this is a question I would love to if to ask Tarantino. It's like, and it would be a harsh question, but it's like, is there any scene, anything you would do in Reservoir Dogs today? Now that you've got so much experience, that would you do differently, even if you didn't have more money? You know, and Pink continues to argue until Joe really lays it down. Now listen up, Mister Pink. There's two ways you can go on this job. My way or the highway. Now, what's it going to be, Mr. Pink? And Pink backs down. Jesus Christ, Joe. Fucking forget about it. <laughs> it's beneath me. Yeah. Which, of course, it isn't because you brought it up. But I, I love that Joe... I love the way Lawrence Tierney... And clearly, he was having some physical issues. and There's ticks in, in how he's yeah. speaking. It all adds to the element. Because... You know, I'm sure he's a pretty vicious dude, but like Hopkins is Odin. We're seeing him after he's like killed multiple millions of people right. and shit. We're seeing Joe at this advanced age. So I have sympathy for Joe in this situation with Mr. Pink. And I'm kind of 
on his side with this cantankerous little shit trying to tell him how to run his own fucking operation. So I'm with Joe on this thing. And he's like, right. never mind what's beneath you or whatever. Just shut up. You know, I, I love <laughs> that he's like putting him in his place a little bit because Pink is a little bit of a jerk off, man. Well, and I love that it takes him a little moment to to, to recover. He goes, yeah. I'll move on when I feel like it. You always got, got the goddamn message. You're so goddamn mad, Howard, you guys can hardly talk. Which I wonder if is an improv in that moment because he might have been stumbling it's with It's got to be an improv. Right? It has yeah. to be. Yeah. It has to be. Let's go to work. And we look are looking at these photos, planning the job, and we're hearing Mr. White talking to Mr. Orange about going over the plan. Where are you? I stand outside and guard the door. I don't let anybody go in or go out. And then we're there with them staking out the jewelry place. Yeah. And I love this bit of dialogue. Mr. Blonde and Mr. Blue crowd control we handle customers and employees that girl's ass and without missing a beat orange says sitting right here on my dick <laughs> what's amazing about this scene and and it, and it really i didn't fully understand it until i was really really studying is you can see the origins of this relationship mm -hmm. orange making that joke and making mr white laugh is what makes him feel a special connection to Orange. Mm. And what's going to happen next is watching Orange's admiration first for Mr. White. Yeah. What happens if the manager won't give you the diamonds? And then White, speaking from on high, speaking as the man of experience, mm. tells him how you do stuff. If you get a customer or an employee who thinks he's Charles Bronson, take the butt of your gun and smash their nose in. Everyone jumps. He falls down screaming, blood squirts out of his nose, freaks everybody out. Nobody says fucking shit after that. Watch Tim Roth yeah. as White gives this speech. The look of admiration and respect that he's given to White at this moment is amazing. What are you feeling about Mr. White and this story at this moment? This is quietly the baddest, baddest ass scene in the movie. Badass scene in the movie, most badass scene in the movie for me because of the way, the frank way that Mr. White explains everything. He's done this a number of times. He understands what works and what doesn't work. And there's a quiet, menacing simplicity yes. to the way he's delivering this to Mr. Orange um, that I think, I think Mr. Orange steps out of him being this nervous cop and becomes a young man watching an older man tell him how well he does his job and him who's so unconfident at this stage in his chosen career envies that and sees that and removes the criminal cop situation and is more like man to man younger man to older man uh having a bit of admiration there which i, I really love to see in the performances between both of them yeah i mean it's father son hmm. you know it's th these two really do care about each other and um, it's a special friendship and there's some sort of a kinetic bond that they have and it's inexplicable. And maybe it's the way that Tim Roth listens and asks questions, you know, asking questions of the old vet, yeah. you know, and making, you know, I mean, but it's a really, it's a, it's the perfect sort of, you know, father-son type deal that these guys have going on, which sets up the ending so wonderfully. There is one shot at the end that's fascinating, which is that when he talks about the next level, so we've talked about the first thing to do, but then we get to the manager. 
and he says, The managers know better than to fuck around. So if you get one that's giving you static, he probably thinks he's a real cowboy, so you gotta break that son of a bitch in two. If you wanna know something he won't tell you, cut off one of his fingers, the little one. Then tell him his thumb's next. After that, I'll tell you if he wears ladies' underwear. <laughs> like I said, it's a badass scene because of that line. That line is so... I mean, they teach you that in the military, how you're going to break someone down in a hand-to-hand combat or a, situ- a combat or a situation where you're face-to-face with that person you need information. So, I mean, that's something that was ingrained to me in the military when I was in it. So when he's breaking it down, it just makes all kinds of logical sense. You know, I totally, totally agree. But I also think if you look at Mr. Orange in that moment that he mm-hmm. says the thing about the finger, mm-hmm. where a moment before he was idolizing Larry, Mm-hmm. now he's scared there's a bit of like sh- like oh shit this is real it was one thing to talk about bashing someone in the face and maybe breaking their nose mm-hmm. but now larry's talking about cutting off people's fingers and he's not talking about it in a way like i've never done this right he's talking about it in a way like i have cut someone's finger off and then without missing a beat with nothing of the heaviness of what he just said mr white says i'm hungry let's get a taco <laughs> and this goes back to that scene with him at the diner with what's the character's name the the his black um trainer or whatever oh detective somebody or other i don't okay, remember fine jesus i'm sorry apologies and remember he's saying to him like you know oh they yeah the, his story that yeah, he was great that guy he got me into the thing yeah. he's, he's like no this guy's not your friend this guy is a weasel he's an asshole who's turning on his friends so he doesn't go to jail for as long as we want to send him to jail for. So it, it almost is a callback to that scene because, totally. like you said, Steve, he's initially admiring him, but then when he sees the brutal simplicity with which he delivers this kind of sociopathic thing to do, or psychopathic thing to do, actually, because that's you doing it, um, he is almost in horror, taken aback and reminded, oh, yeah, these guys are criminals. They're not my friends. I don't friends. know. Really? You think that he's in horror? I don't know. I think Tim Roth walks the line a little bit. I think Mr. Orange, I think Mr. Orange, you know, does one more job or whatever. Say they didn't get busted. You know, I think that that guy could be a criminal easy. No, that's how you think he's glimpsing the possibility of changing sides. No. Oh, okay. I'm saying that I think that he's not a cop. Mm. he's not your traditional cop i think okay. that he's sort of he was a troublemaker his past history was I, I think he's broken tons of laws you know in his childhood especially right and um i don't know you know that's the inter- that's what's so interesting about this scene is i think that you know he has bad tendencies i really yeah. do what do you think, Steve? What do you think? Well, well what I think, I've got a full epiphany here. Because yeah. what we're talking about is a guy who's ostensibly a good guy, a cop, who finds himself being fascinated and titillated and enjoying the bad guys. And that is all of fucking Quentin Tarantino. That is us. We are we were Mr. Orange. We're the audience yeah. watching these horrible people laughing at things that we know don't aren't good, enjoying violence. You know, we talked about the dancing scene and how fun that is. Mm-hmm. We're Mr. Orange all the time. That is what Quentin Tarant is, Tarantino is doing us. He's putting us undercover and making us like things and people that yeah. we shouldn't like. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. 
Good point. And, and here's the thing, just to reinforce all of this is that, because again, how you juxtapose one scene to another, particularly when you're moving in a nonlinear fashion, is like we just had this moment, and I think, and I will ask everyone watching, study the last moment with Mr. Orange. Yeah. Is he still titillated? Is he suddenly a little nervous? What's he feeling in that moment? And then <laughs> we have the hard cut right into the getaway from the job and a car comes careening around the corner rear-ending someone and quentin tarantino's mr blue his head goes into the steering wheel he's bleeding sirens are going he's spinning the wheel we can't get out sirens are coming closer we're like right in the middle of the violence and the job yeah and mr white gets out of his car this guy who i think just revealed himself to be kind of scary and he's got those two guns and it's full john woo yes Cop car comes around the corner. And if we had been seduced by these guys and didn't see them as bad guys, the way Mr. White opens fire on those cops and watching them get killed in the front of that car, it's absolutely brutal. And the camera moves to Mr. Orange's face so we can watch this happen. Yep. So we're further hammering the point home. These are not good people. Yeah. You know? And so yeah. it's, it's a chilling moment with the casualness with, cause I mean, you know, killing a cop, it's a terrible thing to witness. And so to see it in the film, it's so um, simply brutal yep. and there's no hesitation from him to do it. That no remorse. It's it, it, Yeah. No remorse. Right. Exactly. It scares you. You yeah. know, just like you said earlier, did you kill any people? Just some cops or any real people? So it's just that removal of them as human beings, the dehumanization of them in his mind, the casual way with which he kills them is just unsettling. You know? How old Mr. White in this? What is he in his mid 50s, you think? He's probably my 50, age. 60? I'm 54. So yeah. probably he's right around there. He's not going back to jail. Right. Oh, good point. Yeah. yeah. I no. mean, he's not going back. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, yeah. and he's clearly made his mind up before this job on what he'll do to get away. And that's anything. Yeah. Well, and the other thing too is, this is all a big sting operation. There is every possibility that Orange knows those two cops. Yes, 100%. 100%. Wait, did Steve, so did they, I didn't see it. Did they move the camera to Mr. Orange to watch his POV as as Mr. White shooting the cops? We oh, yeah. definitely see his reaction to it and he is shook. Absolutely, oh, absolutely shook. God, I got to watch that again. And of course- Tarantino is now dead, and I don't quite know how he got shot. But yeah, he's now what the dead. hell happened to Tarantino in this? We never find out. I mean, I, you know, keeping like his to acting a, to a minimum a is always good. Some, That's what they, some yeah. good death here, you know? And, Missed and, opportunity. And, and basically, Orange is so shook that White almost has to drag him away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As, yeah. as he's reloading. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's walking stiffly, and they're heading down the street onto a new street with signs have faded out. So good. White pulls a gun on a car. Car screeches to a stop. Hold it! Hold it! Right there! Oh. This moment, and it happens so fast. Yeah. And it's so shocking, which is that we see this woman in the car reaching towards her glove box. And then as Mr. Orange opens the door, she instantly shoots him right in the chest or in the belly. And yeah. this, to remind you, this is uh, Tim Roth's dialect coach who's shooting him hmm. and he instinctually shoots her shoots her yeah and white helps him up and then we have again a quick cut to 
back where we were way at the beginning of the movie in the back of the car with Mr. Orange going, I'm sorry, Larry, blood everywhere. And his line, which is not at the beginning of the movie. I can't believe she killed me. Speaking about yourself in the past tense like that. I was blood scaring the shit out of me, Larry. I'm going to die, I know. And we fade out. The fact that he shot her in front of Mr. White is why Mr. White doesn't think there's no chance he could be a cop. Great points. Great yep. points. Well, and he shot her, I think, on instinct. He got yes, shot. His finger squeezed that trigger. Yep. He didn't mean to. There was, nope. there was no intention there. Well, and this brings us to a question from one of our patrons from Paul Sevilla, who says, is Mr. Orange suffering because he knows he accidentally shot and killed that civilian when they were running from the cops? Can Mr. Orange ever be redeemed or is he finished? Well, first of all, he didn't accidentally do it. He did do it. He tended to do it. It was instinctual. Um, an accident would have been if the gun went off without his knowing. Hmm. Um, he did it instinctively. And he may be having those conversations with himself in his head. The redemption factor possibly is him enduring all the shit that he endures and killing Mr. Blonde for sure. I think it's an equal redemption, but holding on until Joe, until they wait for Joe and being the thing that motivates this standoff that kills all these people who were bad people in the world. So I think he, if you want to look at the scales, I think he atones for the unfortunate death of that woman because it wasn't necessary. He didn't go into that situation wanting to kill her. It was an instinctual thing. So leading to the death of all these bad people, maybe he's balanced the scales out a little bit before he himself dies. John, I could not disagree with you more. <laughs> Let's he, do it. He shoots her. Yeah. And any guy that would shoot, any cop that would shoot an innocent woman or any kind of woman like that, there should be some sort of regret. There should be some sort of a, sure. I don't I don't see any regret from Tim Ross character in any moment of any scene in the backseat. Look, Steve said himself, I can't believe she killed me or I, or whatever, you know, he's not thinking, he's not saying I shot her or I did this or I did that or I shouldn't have done it or whatever. And, and then even through the whole rest of the movie after he's wounded, I don't see any remorse from him. Yeah, you're right. They have the exchange with him and uh, Kirk Baltz, the character that he plays. And at no point when they're alone is two cops. Does he mention that he talked? Yeah. Yeah. Does he mention it or say like, you know, after he even yells at him to shut the fuck up, he doesn't say like, I killed somebody. I killed an innocent woman. Like, yeah, Yeah. it's a good point. It's a good point. Maybe David, I couldn't disagree with you more. (laughs) Um, I actually think you're right that that in that scene with the cop, that's the one place you could see it. But he could never show regret anywhere else because he can't show regret in front of the bad guys because he's got to keep up his cred as undercover No, it's because he has the bad boy tendency. That's why he doesn't care, Steve. (laughs) It's perfectly possible. And I think my feeling about this, first of all, it depends on what we mean by redemption. And it's like, for me, I, I actually disagree with you too, John, is that killing a psychopath doesn't redeem me for killing a, an innocent. Like those not that's not how my brain works. Mm-hmm. But I do think if Mr. Orange were to survive, he's good. This is going to haunt him for the rest of his life. Yeah, I would agree with that. That's what that's what I think. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
Hello, Cinephiles fans. You know, we all kind of walk around with these stressors, big, small, medium in our lives that are triggered sometimes by frustrations at work or frustrations at our job or just frustrations overall about our life. Because sometimes you know this, if you compare, you despair and you just want to live a life that's a little bit more clean and accepting of yourself and a little more open to receiving positive messages for yourself so you can have that life that you want to live and have that great work-life balance. And it's not always easy. And for me, for years and years, I thought all of this stress, all of this hardship, I had to just carry on my own, that this is what it meant to be a man. And it was finally getting therapy where I realized like, oh, I don't have to carry that stuff. There's a place where I can unburden myself and actually get advice and guidance about how to deal with it better in the future. Yeah, Steve, you and I have spoken very proudly about how therapy has helped both of of us deal with our stressors in our lives. And if any of you are listening to us who are thinking of starting therapy, well, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and it's suited to your schedule. All you have to do is to fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge if things aren't working out, which I think is a great benefit. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Cinephiles today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S. So now we've done this crazy journey through time, and now we're caught back up to the present because we're back into the warehouse. The camera moves around behind the cop. Mr. Orange is sort of moving and the door opens. Larry runs in, goes straight to Orange. Nice guy Eddie comes in and goes straight to Mr. Blonde. Yeah. His buddy, who is dead on the floor, who he left alive. And now Mr. Orange is going to try to spin a lie. A lie which has truth in it. He slashed the cop's face. Cut off his ear and was going to burn him alive. What? I didn't hear you. It's so interesting seeing how Chris Penn is now suddenly very dangerous. Yes, yes. My went crazy. Smashed the cop's face. Cut off his ear. Was gonna burn him alive. This cop. And shoots the cop. Multiple times. Yeah. It happens so fast. Yeah. Their evil casualness of dehumanizing cops. Yeah. Exactly. Now Orange has to deal with the fact that. The cop who he told not to be a pussy and stay quiet and we have to wait yeah. is now dead. He was going to kill the cop and me when you guys walked through the door. He was going to blow to hell and make out for the diamonds. What so sucks about this is that we as the audience knows this is a terrible lie. It yes. is a terrible lie. It's a terrible lie. Because we know the background that Orange doesn't know. Yeah. Of course, Mr. White doesn't know what we know. And this so is this is this confirms what he thinks about Mr. Blonde. All right, tell you, that sick piece of shit was a stone cold psycho. And of course, while this is going on, Pink has walked around the cop, is looking at the missing ear, ends up <laughs> finding the ear. So even then, there's still some comedy going on within all this horribleness. It's right about the ear, it's hacked off. <laughs> and I think, again, Chris Penn is so good in the scene. He goes, You're saying that Mr. Blonde was going to kill you, and then when we got back, he was going to kill us, take the satchel of diamonds and scram. I'm right about that, right? That's correct. That's your story? I swear on my mother's eternal soul is what happened. And you could just feel, it's like you could see the shovel digging him deeper into this bad lie. Uh, 
And Eddie reveals what happened, that Mr. Blonde had gotten caught, could have walked away, that he didn't sell out his dad, did four years. You're telling me that now that this man is free and we're making good on our commitment to him, he's just going to decide out of the fucking blue to rip us off? Decide? (laughs) I love that he's got spittle. Yeah. And, you know, the mouth foaming almost. As he says, and then when he says, why don't you fucking tell me what really happened? You know, there's, as you said, Steve, he slides into a ferocious mode and becomes chilling in this moment, for sure. Does nice guy Eddie have a better friend than Vic Vega? I don't think so. I think It's like his brother. It's like his brother, man. Yeah. Yeah. This is just Chris Penn Mm. at his finest. God rest his soul. I mean, I think think he died soon after this movie, but... This just goes to show you when an actor gets his teeth into a piece of material, you know, what they can do. I mean, this is by far his best performance, you know. I mean, between this and best of the best, I think these are the... <laughs> How dare you? How dare you? Look, I love best of the best. Don't leave off Footloose, man. For God's sake. Footloose fair. is great. Or At Close Range, which is a great yeah, film yeah. with him and Walking. Well, yeah. And then we hear in that gravelly voice. What the hell for? It'd just be more bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> and he reveals that Mr. Orange is working for the LAPD. And by the way, when we now look at Orange, he is in a sea of blood. Yeah. I mean, I like he he's bled like 30 gallons. He's bled and Tim Roth is not a big guy. Yeah. He's bled like five guys worth of blood. He's bleach white. And Mr. White has just bonded to Mr. Orange, and it's so, it's so sad to watch. Yeah. Joe, Joe, I don't know what you think you know, but you're wrong. Like hell I am. Joe, trust me on this. You've made a mistake. He's a good kid. I understand you're hot. You're super fucking pissed. We're all real emotional. <laughs> I love the the use of like almost psychological like conflict resolution language. We're all real emotional here, you know? But this goes back, Steve, this goes back to what we started earlier. Mr. White, although he is the adult, he's also the child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the way he thinks in this is totally irrational. Yep. It's all about feelings, not about ration. Yeah. Well, and it's also why... Tarantino, if he had told this story linearly, this wouldn't be as powerful because we wouldn't have just had the scene with the two of them in the car kind of bonding. Right. But that just happened. That actually yeah. happened way, way before a whole bunch of the action. But because it's so close to this, we feel that connection very strongly. <laughs> right. Right. How do you know all this? It was the only one I wasn't 100% on. I should have my fucking head examined going ahead when I wasn't 100%. Yeah. Which. By the way, we've heard multiple times in different ways of whether or not someone's 100%. And Joe draws his gun to kill Mr. Orange. Oh, man. And then Mr. White draws his gun. Yeah. And then Eddie draws his gun. This moment, you, I, I, I don't know if you'll agree with me, but for me, this is like, and it's so weird to say this, but for me, this is like the end of Romeo and Juliet which is we're Mm -hmm. heading for this tragedy and the tragedy is inevitable. And as you're heading towards it, there's just like this feeling of please stop, please turn, please don't. And yet, you know, and it's like this weird sort of every time I watch this movie, I get here and I'm like, 
please let let this one time this movie not end the way that it's about to end but it has to end this way of course it does and white pleading with joe says you're making a terrible mistake i'm not gonna let you make come on guys nobody wants this we're supposed to be fucking professionals (laughs) (laughs) that train has left the station baby joe if you kill that man you die next Repeat, if you kill that man, you die next. How close is he to Joe? It seems like he's really close. I think so, too. I, so, think they've known, I think 25 years they've known each other, probably. There's a whole 30-minute video you can do dissecting why White would do this at this moment. Like, why would he yeah. risk all these connections, an old friend, for a guy he just met a, a It's not a guy, ago. John. It's What's his that? kid. Yeah. It's his kid. Yeah. He looks at the, he, Mr. White has no family. Yeah, yeah. He's got no wife. He's been in jail. He's never been a father to anybody. Hmm. This guy has gotten under his skin. This yeah. is his son. And yeah. this is like Joe putting a gun at your kid. Yeah. Well, I, I totally agree with that. And it's also, I'm sure both of you have been through a thing where you went through in some super intense fucking experience mm-hmm. with a person you don't know that well. Mm-hmm. And that bond is there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that is a that is a deep thing. I mean, he went through life and death with Mr. Orange. Yeah. Like, I mean, that was a that was it got his blood all over him. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Chris Penn in this next line says, It's so good. He says, Larry. We have been friends, and you respect my dad, and I respect you, but I will put fucking bullets right through your heart. You put that fucking gun down now. He's so calm in his deme- in his delivery yeah. of this, right? So that when he has that explosion that sets off the fireworks, it's the thing that shocks everybody into motion. It's so great. It's the greatest, it's the greatest line in the whole movie. <laughs> Steve, you have to say it. I will say you have to you have to deliver it right. So it's building, and and Larry doesn't want to fire. He says, "God damn you, Joe! Don't make me do this." And in this rising intensity, Chris Penn says, "Larry, stop pointing that fucking gun at my dad." <laughs> did, I, did I do okay, David? I thought I thought the line was, "Don't you shoot my dad." <laughs> What's Mr. Pink doing? I, I, I lose he's, track. He's of under the is ramp. He, is, is, he hides under, under the ramp. The ramp that hiding. orange is bleeding through. Pink slides under there because he's a cowardly little shit. And Joe fires, and they all fire. What's funny about it is if you watch it closely, nobody shoots Nice Guy Eddie. I saw it in slow motion. And Kaitel shoots Joe and then yeah, shoots Nice Guy shoot, Eddie. Kaitel shoots, shoots twice. His, his, he shoots twice, but his gun is not aimed at Nice Guy Eddie. Ah, and the okay. squib went off early on Nice uh, Guy Eddie, and they just didn't have any more money for another squib and couldn't do another take. Oh, my God. That's so funny. But, I mean, this moment, I, I can't even begin to tell. I, 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 this is, you know, John, we've talked, we had this question of like, what movie would you like to go back and see for the first time or see with an audience for oh, the yeah. first time they see it? I can't imagine what this was like, you know, what I experienced when I saw this the first time. Well, and we've we've taken a lot of time talking about the script, talking about the characters, talking about the construction of the scenes. But 
the framing of the camera is something that is really so essential to this movie as well. The fact that you are at Orange's level, in essence, when you're watching this standoff, so you not only are you not equal to them, you're kind of below watching mm. this as a like a spectator, and it adds a size to all of them that are involved in the shootout. They become even bigger in so the effect of it is even more um, memorable and more uh, I don't know just kind of gets into your head even strongly even more strongly because you're seeing it at how the camera has framed it you know it's I mean that's exactly what I said John kind of uh, early on I think in episode one where in the in the bathroom scene where I thought the camera was low yeah and. Yeah. I, I, you know, Steve, you're probably right. I, I need, I haven't watched the movie since our last thing, but the, the, the camera seems really low in some of these takes a la Citizen Kane or whatever, oh, yeah. whatever he's trying right. to do. Right. And, um, but it's just sort of an, an unusual angle. I wonder if there's something to that. I would love to ask mm. him that question. In the three bodies, they go down and there's a moment sort of silence and then Mr. Pink appears out from hiding, looks at the bodies, Little looks skeptic. around, spots the bag of diamonds, and just heads out. Yeah. I think that Mr. Pink, the fact that Mr. Pink gets away with the diamonds is one of the greatest choices in this film. Well, he doesn't get away. No. Don't you the, hear? You hear the shootout outside. Yeah, you hear the cops roll up on him. Yeah. I, in my, look. I never saw him get captured. In my mind, Mr. Pink got away with that. Okay, nobody. Well, it's all off screen. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then we see Larry sit up, bleeding, crawls over to Mr. Orange. Orange reaches out to him. It's super t- tender in its way. Larry pulls Orange's head into his lap, and we could hear the sirens. I'm sorry. Looks like we're good. <laughs> Because at this moment, before Orange says what he's going to say, Larry, Mr. White, was just a hero who saved the life, as David, as you said, of his son. Hmm. That's this moment before. Yep. I do want to take a moment to stress Keitel's noises, Hmm. which I think mirror Buscemi's, uh, not uh, Tim Roth's noises of the high pitched squeals in the car, his almost animalistic grunting. (laughs) (laughs) There's something great, right? Cause he's, he's, it's so great. It's so weird, but it works. It is. They had done. Oh, I totally agree. That's so Because Tim keeps going. He's very, I'm sorry. You know, you get the yeah. the juxtaposition. Oh my god! Of them, so it's so good. Well, John, other than the kneecap, the gut shot is the most painful place you can get shot. <laughs> <laughs> um, Takes a long time to die. And Orange then says, and you see, Kaitel just sort of freeze. Yeah, and you could feel that word; those words go through him. You know. And he's still kind of touching his face tenderly. And then, John, as you said, the noise that comes out of Mr. White's voice at this moment, it's just primal. Yeah. 
you know, they talk about acting and you talk about nonverbal acting and then you talk about acting with the words or in between the lines. This grunt acting that he does in this moment, it's the scream that he can't do, but you can hear the civil war he is having with himself in the grunting. At least the, that's how I read it because he's like, oh, he's so mad at himself, but also the love that he has for this guy conflicts with the anger in that moment so that when we are slowly moving in on him, as the cops come through the door, his face is conveying all of that. Like, do I kill him? Do I not kill him? What are all these cops are coming? Like, it's so much that he's doing um, there with just the grunting and the looks on and the look on his face. It's incredible. I mean, that's is why you get Kaitel to anchor your movie, man, because you want that moment from a seasoned veteran in a critical scene, a critical final scene in your film. It really is. It's really weird to think about in retrospect why Tim Roth confessed. Yeah. I was just going to ask you guys. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think he did? You know, he's kept up the lie the whole time, Mm. but maybe he just knew he was going to die. Maybe in the big pool of blood or whatever was happening, he just finally succumbed and he just said, you know, I'm going to give it to, I got to tell this guy straight. I got to be honest for one time in my whole existence at the very end, I'm going to finally be honest. Uh, I think, there's a thing, and I try to think of what movie it's from or book is from. It's a thing I've heard many times of like, you 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 have someone you care about and you have a secret, and you really want to tell them the secret, and then oh, the therapist says, so "True, are are you telling wanting to tell them the secret for them or for you?" Ah, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And this is a moment where you should have shut the fuck up. This is about <laughs> him <laughs> wanting to get this thing out, and not about White, who he feels bad. He just he just tortured the man who tried to save his life. That's what yeah. he did here in this moment. Yeah. And yeah. I just, th- and the other thing I was thinking about is like, so orange is haunted by the fact that he killed this innocent person. Yeah. You know, that he made that mistake essentially. And now Larry killed two of his friends to protect someone who had lied to him. Mm. And that's now in this moment where Kaitel makes that noise of like, what has he done? He was wrong. And what mm. that wrongness led him to do. Yeah. And he brings his gun up and he puts it against Mr. Orange's jaw. And orange again says, I'm sorry. And now we hear, but yeah. do not see the cops. Face! Drop the fucking gun, buddy. Now. Put the gun down. I'm going to fucking blow you away. Which of course, is the commode story of, you know, I'm going to blow you away. Like that's what's happening now to Larry. And then we hear gunshots and Larry falls out of frame. But you see him kill Mr. Orange. You see him fire a shot. There's a, there's a, there's a recoil in his arm. I think so. Yeah, but but it's well, off camera. Well, and you because it also could be him. I think he does too. That's what I think happens. It's too. pretty obvious. I but think. it also could be him getting shot by guns, but by, by the yeah. cops is causing him to make that movement. Mm-hmm. No, um, I think I think he kills him. It, yeah, it's implied that he kills him, which is why they shoot him dead. Yeah, yeah I, I think that he, he shoots just, and then they they shoot him out of frame, just well, like they killed. Bashemi out there with the diamonds. 
How dare you? You could hear the gunshots as soon as I guess you're yelling. right. I guess you're right. Well, then we hear uh, th- this actually, though, is a question from Justin Toner, one mm-hmm. of our patrons, who yeah. says, uh, I love the ending of Reser- Reservoir Dogs, especially how Mr. White agonizes over it if he should shoot Mr. Orange or not. I'm not sure if I feel like that's exactly what he's agonizing over. He says, we hear gunshots from the cops, but we don't see Mr. White sh- shot and killed. I always assumed he died, but why would you? do you think Tarantino leave it ambiguous? And do you think Mr. Orange made it, uh, or did he die as well? I Okay, if you watch this movie, as many times have I seen this movie, there's clearly a gunshot yeah. that comes out of Mr. White's thing, and then the cops unload. So there's like a shot, and then there's a reaction gunfire. Okay, the sh- single shot is Mr. White and then Mr. Orange, and then the retaliation gunfire, maybe a half a second later, is the cops blowing Mr. White away. It's unmistakable. Yeah, that's what I think, too. I 100% think they all die, with possible exception of Mr. Pink. Um, yeah. <laughs> I will say this. I agree with Justin Toner. I think he does agonize about it. I think he absolutely mm. is at cross purposes because he's just sacrificed – his friends to save this guy. And he has developed, as David said, a father son relationship with this guy. So both those things are slamming into themselves in that moment. And I, that's what I read on Kaitel's face, which is why he doesn't just shoot the kid right off the bat. He, he hesitates. He, I, you're right. No, no, you're right. You're right. Actually. And then the cops come in. Well, I mean, it's just my interpretation of it and your interpretation. That's right. <laughs> and I, and yes. I, I love it. And I love the way it all goes down. I, and he has to die. The orange has to die to I mean, atone, as you guys mentioned, for the death of that innocent woman. I think he has to die in this situation. So everybody is wiped out from this horrible jewelry heist. Everybody. Isn't it strange that <clears throat> this hasn't been a play on Broadway or something like that? Mm. I mean, you get six or seven actors and you could just literally reconstruct this as a play. Yeah, you really could. It would be very easy, you know. But but by the way, just so you know, Steve Buscemi thinks that Mr. Pink lived, really, and got <laughs> no away way. with the diamonds. Of course, he no does. way. But by the way, this is a vague memory of. But but I think I remember because it just connected with me that in Tarantino's books, I think I think I'm right with that he doesn't like the end of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Which oh. really surprises me because there's a similarity with the end of Reservoir Dogs with yeah. the sound of the bullets and um and then you know this is the end of the film <laughs> and uh we see written and directed by Quentin Tarantino and the song choice the song choices which have been brilliant throughout the entire movie continue with the unbelievable choice of you put the lime in the coconut man <laughs> the great Harry Nielsen <laughs> there was huge buzz about this movie yeah. they had their first screening at AFI and it just was a huge huge reaction it premiered at the 1992 Sundance Film Festival it's clearly the most talked about film there uh, the New York Daily News critic uh, Jamie Bernard who was at the festival mm-hmm. compared it to the Lumiere film of the 1895 train arriving at the station, which wow. people were so, cause they'd never, this is like one of the very first movies ever. And that Shit. people were freaked out because it just seemed real. They say, he said the reaction at Sundance was like that. She said, reservoir dogs had a similar effect on audiences. They simply were not ready for it. Wow. And then it gets picked up for distribution by Miramax. It opened in 19 theaters. 
made $147,000 with almost no ads. Immediately expanded to 61 theaters. Uh, and what's interesting, by the way, is that Miramax only bought the theatrical light rights. Mm. They didn't buy the home video rights, which Artisan had. And this is was huge for Miramax. It was huge for Artisan. Uh, but Miramax had no reason to push it for the Oscars because they didn't have the rights for the home video. Oh, wow. So they don't make any money off of it. That's right. so, so it doesn't really get pushed for Oscars. And what Quentin Tarantino said about this, that one of the things he thought made this difference is that previous to Re Reservoir Dogs, independent movies made their money on sex, not on violence. Mm -hmm. After Reservoir Dogs, that was not the same. Sex lies in videotape. Yeah. It grossed around $20 million around the world, $3 million U.S., uh, but it was huge on home video. Mm. Empire Magazine named it the greatest independent film of all time. Wow. And one of the people who was a huge fan who saw it multiple times in the theater was an actor named Bruce Willis. Mm. Um, I have a couple more questions from our patrons, and then we can get to our final thoughts. Okay. This one is from Anthony Pomus, who says... In 2021, Tarantino on Bill Maher's HBO show said that he considered remaking Reservoir Dogs for his 10th and final film. Do you think that would enhance or negate the original uh, film with his legacy? And what kind of film do you think should perhaps be Tarantino's 10th film? Star Trek, perhaps? There's a reason I don't listen to Eminem rapping anymore. Once you've achieved a certain level of fame and notoriety and celebrity and money, I don't trust you to find the guttural thing that motivated your initial explosion of rage and authenticity on the scene. And so I would hate Tarantino to go back and remake Reservoir Dogs, even though he'd probably write an incredible movie, cast it in incredible way. Though I don't know if there are tough ass motherfuckers who act anymore aside from like who are well known aside from like Jura Butler or Grillo or Bernthal. I don't know. So I think we'd have a tough time casting some of these characters. So I'd hate to see him do it again, to be honest with you. And I don't know, I guess an Elseworlds Star Trek with a lot of cuss words and crafty conversations and references to movies would be interesting, but yeah, I don't want him to see him anywhere near doing, redoing this again, myself personally. Johnny, I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll talk more about it in the final thoughts, but, mm. you know, you don't mess with this sort of perfection. You know, you don't remake, you know, I mean, doing that is about as intelligent as remaking Psycho, Gus. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean. So true, shot for shot. Though. Seriously. I mean, and then as far as Star Trek, no. Yeah. No. 100% the same. Agree. Why would you remake this? That's, I mean, like, it's great. It's done. Move on. That doesn't make any sense to me at all. I was kind of thinking, actually, like a, uh, he hasn't done a science fiction, not Star Trek, but maybe like a noir Blade Runner-y sort of movie yeah. would be a yeah. cool 10th film for Tarantino. Yeah. Uh, we have another question from Evan Zoller who says, and and David off to explain what this term means, but he says, "Ask does Reservoir Dogs make your list of movies that ruined Hollywood, like Indiana Jones and Star Wars? There have been many good films that were inspired by the movie, like Usual Suspects, but because Tarantino was so influential and in changing the industry's taste in real time over the years between Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, that I'm sure there are many bad movies trying to reinvent the formula. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so what this term is, David, is that uh, I think there are movies that were so great that Hollywood spent a whole bunch of time trying to imitate them. And then that led to a lot of really crappy movies. And mm-hmm. I absolutely put Reservoir Dogs in that group where we yeah. get a whole bunch of imitators. Most of them aren't anywhere near the original. Um, so, yeah, I think it is one of those films. Well, I think that, I mean, I wouldn't put Usual Suspects in that category because I think Usual Suspects was uh, a masterpiece on its yeah. own. Like it had nothing to do with anything that Tarantino did. But, you know, I mean, it's in my top three of all time. This movie, and that's why I want to do this show, is because of this movie. John, what do you think? I, I, I don't think you like this category of mine. Uh, no, I. Well, I don't. I don't. I don't like to say anything ruined Hollywood when we're still making great films. But I understand the intention behind that category, which I always appreciate when you bring up on the show, because it certainly leads to a lot of thoughts in my head. So, um, to consider, I. I don't know that it ruined Hollywood. I think these films, I would go in a different way. I would say these films expose Hollywood. And by that, I mean, it shows you the great ones versus the imitators. And it only reaffirms why these are the great ones because these imitators can't hold a candle. And eventually the imitators die out. We rarely see these kinds of nonlinear movies anymore. Now we see them in TV series Mm. Most of the time they're done like Last of Us is doing an incredible job of it currently on HBO Max of doing nonlinear stuff um, and jumping it back and forth in time. So in a way, you might say it ruined Hollywood movies, but it gave us these incredible TV series that we've enjoyed for years and years now. So I like this film for what it did. And I can ignore the goes and the what two days in the yeah. valley and these other films that were influenced by because yeah. that eventually died out like three or four years <laughs> later. You know, yeah. the, the, yeah. those directors were exposed for the limited copying that they did because Tarantino kept creating great works and is still creating great works. And that's that's the deal. Time. Real quick, Steve, before you jump in, you know, I think that what it was was structure. Mm. You know, that's where. You know, you could try to copy, but what you can't copy is his voice. Yeah. You know, and you can't copy what he has to say about society and just his humor and all that stuff. None of those films could possibly do that. This is all about structure. And we're always looking ever since Tarantino, we're always looking for a way to mess with the structure, to fuck it up, to, to be different and all that. But in reality, you know, this has been going on forever. And if you guys ever want to see an interesting movie about structure, watch Sophie's Choice, 1982, you know, which is the most insane structure you will ever see in a movie. But as far as voice is concerned, you know, they're all imitators. They're not Tarantino. You know, this was structure. What do you think, Steve? Well, I, I, I agree with both of you. And I think that, you know, it's funny. One of the things that John and I have talked about a bunch is that, you know, Citizen Kane is the cited as the greatest film ever made. And we learned all these things from it. But people don't imitate Citizen Kane. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you can't, nobody really can't. does that. Yeah. And I think the same is true here is that you could try. People imitate. They imitate the surface. So but they can't get what Tarantino is really doing. And I, I will give my final thoughts about this film first, which is that I think technically in almost every way, and partially because it gets bigger budgets, Tarantino improves as a director a great deal after this film. Mm. This is my favorite Tarantino film, right. hands down. Yeah. 
And the reason is, is that despite the fact that he gets slicker and despite the fact that he's so, it's there's so much coolness that he's going to do later on in his career, this is the only one that deeply moves me. The other ones are not moving. They're thrilling and exciting and funny, and they and and, and they have some emotional moments. But the end of this f- fucking movie and the build to the end and the sense of impending doom and the emotion of Larry in this moment cradling the head of the guy that he killed his friends for and realizing he's been betrayed, that haunts me. Nothing else in Tarantino movies haunt me in that way. And that is... I mean, just so damn powerful. And you know what? I'm going to change my answer for one for my 10th film that I would like Tarantino to do. I would like him to do something that's deeply emotional, you know, like actually isn't in that cool Tarantino Hollywood mm-hmm. love of film way, but like personal and true that can make me feel some of the emotions that I felt in Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. Yeah, my final thoughts on this movie is it's still my echoing Steve's comments already. Uh, my favorite Tarantino movie. It is the one that I enjoy the most because it is the most. It's the most um, transparent window you can have into who Quentin Tarantino is, his influences, his motivations. Now, does he perfect this for my favorite overall film in Kill Bill Volume One and Volume Two as well? Yes, but here there's a real honest, raw authenticity that is undeniable. And as Steve pointed out, that critic mentioning and comparing it to Lumiesta is actually 100% correct because I wasn't alive for that, regardless of what people think. I wasn't alive <laughs> for that Melier situation or the train showing up there in the theater. You know, I wasn't alive for that. But I remember the feeling I had when I saw Reservoir Dogs the first time, and it's never left me. And every single time I've watched it, even when I'm like, oh, is, it might be dated. I don't know if it's any good anymore. Uh, maybe it's, you know, I've moved on past it. Every time I watch it again, I am back in love with the writing, the directing, the performances, and the overall story, um, which is a lot more um, unsettling and dirty than you think it is. When you enjoy, yeah, you can get caught up on all the cute exchanges and the references and all of that, but there's a real broken glass, barbed wire, dirt, grit to this film that is in your gut when you watch it, and I love it, and I will always love it, and talking about it with you guys made me fall back in love with it even more um, and appreciate it even more for the really incredible work of art that it is. And I absolutely think this is a film that should be spoken about with the great debut films like Citizen Kane and others that have come from the great directors that we've had in our lifetime or in our in our worlds for the last few decades. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, John, you said it great, both you and Steve. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, when I when I went to the theater and I saw it, I grabbed my roommate and I came back to the theater and I watched it again. You know, and I get in fights with my friends all the time about Pulp Fiction versus this. <laughs> and it's not even a question to me. Yeah. There's This is such a personal, incredible movie that he has made in every front. And, uh, you know, it's just, you know, I mean, I put, you know, my favorite movie of all time, I say, is Ordinary People. I'm just... Just like Steve, you said about him doing a 
uh, an emotional movie. You know, I mean, I'm when I watch Ordinary People and Timothy Hutton's performance, I'm mm. I, I cry for half of the movie. You know, and 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 that's the biggest reason why I put that as my number one. And then you know, number two is probably a tie between On the Waterfront and Citizen Kane because I got to wow. have an old movie in there. And then three is three is Dogs, and because I have never done that before. And you said it so good at Sundance that people were just like, it was the first film. It was like the excitement of the first film that they ever saw, mm. you know, with the 1895 thing or yeah. something like that. And I'm just like, that's how I felt. And um, it really set the stage for my career and what I wanted to do, you know, which was blow people away. Mm. And, um, you know, Quinn's my idol. You know, I don't go around and throw out the genius thing very much, but I mean, he really is the man and, uh, and he's really sort of that this movie changed my life. And, uh, and if you haven't seen it and you're listening to this podcast, please, please, please go see it multiple times. That was great, David. That was great. So, so that's what we think of Reservoir Dogs. I got to tell you, I am so glad we took three parts to do mm. this thing. Mm. You know, we, we when we got to the end of part two, we were we, we were going, well, maybe we should just push through to the end. And I'm so <laughs> glad we didn't because it's so no deserved. Chance. It's so deserved this time. And we would love to hear what you think of Reservoir Dogs. You could visit us on our Facebook page. If you're a Facebook person, we'll always have good conversations there about film. If you like Twitter more and you're cool with staying there, regardless of what goes on on Twitter, well, then you could search for Cine underscore files. We're the Cinephiles podcast on Instagram. If you haven't subscribed to the show, you should, and maybe subscribe to it. If you're an Apple person on Apple Podcasts, where you could leave a review. If not, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, Downcast, YouTube, where you can leave your comments. They're all good places. You can buy or stream Reservoir Dogs along with every other film we've ever reviewed on cinephiles.net. And you can support the show and listen to our cinephile shorts, suggest movies that we do, and even ask questions like so many of our patrons patrons did that appeared in this podcast on patreon.com slash the cinephiles and if you want to reach me it's sr morris on twitter sr morris one on instagram and enterprise incidents where we continue continue through the star trek world john how would people find you well if you want to find me you can find me at the roca says on twitter instagram and tiktok the outlaw nation on twitch uh and my youtube channel youtube.com slash john roca says and my other podcasts um the hot mic the cinephiles um and yeah, that's it. <laughs> we used to say a third podcast, but it is no longer the Geek Buddies. You oh, and the Geek, Geek Buddies. Up. That's right. And the Geek Buddies. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. Dave McKenna, this has been a fucking blast. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, you guys. You guys are the best. So Thanks much for having me. Uh do, do you, I know we have embattled, we have of course American History X. Are there other things you want to plug? And do you want us to get drive people towards your massive social media? I, I have un I have unmassive social media, but I will mention it if you want. Um I'm just getting back into Twitter, but I'm just mostly getting into that in the news. But I'm a David McKenna screenwriter on Twitter and Insta, and that's about it. Um, well, thank you again for, so much for coming on the show. Yeah, my I pleasure, think. guys. You guys are awesome. This is so much fun. I really love it. And uh, what a great movie. And you guys are fantastic. Well, thank you. And uh, we are going to be back. I think our next show is a live show, which is yet mm -hmm. to be announced. And after that, guess what? It's more Quentin Tarantino because we are going to dig into Django Unchained. Yeah. That's coming up next on The Cinephiles. Yeah.